You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. It's a song on my heart after you talking. It's a reach out and touch somebody's hands. Make this a better place if you can. That's all you get. You got you to gotta pay for the premium if you want to hear the rest of the song. Yep, you heard that right. Sometimes we engage in a little bit of singing from time to time just for fun. No, you didn't tune in to a different show. This is the Be The Bridge podcast, but our founder and host of this podcast, Latasha Morrison, is away doing one of her mini trainings that she leads around the country to help organizations become more aware, sensitive, and harmonious in the context of racial relations. My name is Faith Brooks, and I am the Director of Programs and Innovation for Be The Bridge, and today I'm your host. You will still hear Latasha's conversations with our guest, as I will be acting simply as a guide through today's discourse. In this episode, the conversations will center around the topic of CRT, which is short for critical race theory. Recently, critical race theory has emerged as a tool for some to lodge criticism against the work of Be The Bridge as it relates to our work in racial equity. It is also being used in an attempt to put a stumbling block in our organization's way as we work towards racial justice and healing. But I must say, we reject that CRT is our guiding framework. Instead, Be The Bridge was built around a biblical worldview as is clear in our mission, vision, and our values. In doing the work of racial justice, we put in the scholarship of a wide variety of scholars, theologians, anthropologists, and sociologists. Among all of these are some critical race theorists. When we see scholarship speaking truth in ways that we can use to lead us towards racial justice, we utilize them. And in that same tradition of seeking scholarship, Latasha had two separate conversations with two scholars, Dr. Christina Edmondson and doctoral candidate Jamar Tisby. Both are thought leaders in the push for racial equity in ecclesiastical spaces. Let's kick things off with Jamar Tisby, who is not only a New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Color of Compromise, but he is the president of The Witness, which is a black Christian collective. Amazingly, this Notre Dame alum finds time to also co-host the Pass the Mic podcast and is a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Mississippi. Speaking of history, we have to start with the flawed hypothesis that many leaders who believe as we believe are Marxist and or communist. Some of you hearing this may think this sort of name calling is new, but listen as Latasha prompts Jamar to shed some light on the history of this problematic thinking. 
I love listening to you, Jamar, and just how you can roll history off your your, your tongue. I mean, um, you're getting your doctorate in history, and I love history. And so that is one of the things that um, I love about you is just how you communicate history so effectively and so well. And uh, one of the things that you know we see as we dive into this conversation around um, critical race theory um, today and have this high-level approach and how we're addressing it um, is that many leaders um, are being called Marxists and communists. And so why, you know, why should this label bother us or shouldn't, is this new or is this something that we've seen before? Absolutely. It's something that has a long history and pattern. Folks always have tried to label people as a way to disempower them. And that's especially true when it comes to black people. But if we focus on racial dynamics and the way uh, white supremacists and, and, and racists have labeled black people, mm-hmm. they use the 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 N word with the ER at the end as an epithet. But there are other ways um, they labeled people working for racial justice. So after uh, the Civil War, people coming into the South to try to work for black advancement and black uplift, they would label mm-hmm. carpetbaggers or scalawags. And and what they did was they would put you in a box, mark it with what, whatever red X was, was forbidden in their social circles, and that was a way to ignore you mm-hmm. or to minimize your voice. So... There's a long history of this, and, and now we ha- have labels like communist, uh-huh. Marxist, liberal, leftist, social justice warrior, and the latest one being critical race theorist, uh-huh. uh, as, as again, attempts to put you in the box, close that up tight, and not have to listen to what you're saying. I guess you can tell today that Latasha is challenging us to swim in the deep end of the pool as it relates to ideas and vantage points when it comes to race. Let's meet Dr. Christina Edmondson, who holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University and an MS degree from the University of Rochester in family therapy and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. She's educated, y'all. For over a decade, Christina has served in a variety of roles, including recently the Dean for Intercultural Student Development at Calvin University. Let's hear Dr. Edmondson's addition to this conversation. I would just love to hear your thoughts and maybe explain to people um, what it is, you know, what is critical race theory? You know, depending on your uh, your own theological tradition or kind of orientation, you you might deal with these um, scholarly um, resources in different ways. And so. I embrace the what we call the doctrine of common grace, mm-hmm. um, and, and one of the aspects of that doctrine is that um, you know God, who is the Creator, has created people in His His image, mm-hmm. and that we have uh, because of that, whether we are believers or not, we have a creative capacity, and we mm-hmm. still have the same assignment despite the fall, right. which is to create and shape culture, and that means that believers and unbelievers alike are bringing forward a whole host of contribu- contributions, mm-hmm. um, because creativity is one of those shared and extended attributes of of God, the Creator, that mm-hmm. we receive in, in being made in God's image, right. and. Um, so bearing that in mind, um, ha- holding to that that belief pretty pretty fiercely, I hold to mm-hmm. it um, because I love to learn, and I actually think that there are consequences when we look at certain ideas and say 
you know, air quotes, it's the Christian idea and this is the non-Christian idea, mm-hmm. um, because then it takes off our, our filter and our discernment. We need to be critically discerning everything <laughs> that comes before us right. um, and submitting it to the word of God and asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us, teach mm. us and correct us and understanding it. We also need to be incredibly charitable uh, towards mm. our neighbors um, and, and, and academics are our neighbors, so <laughs> you know, um, and um the the people who uh, when I think about um, Derek Bell, uh, one of you know the kind of the founding voice of critical race theory, uh, the late Derek Bell, he's mm-hmm. passed away, um, and mm-hmm. the the many other uh, many scholar lawyers uh, who who have have helped to shape a critical race theory. We want to be charitable and respectful to right. our academic neighbors, and so uh, I stress that because I think often when I have seen criticism, it has been around making caricatures of out of people, right. and oftentimes not inviting um, them to the to the discussion to teach us and submitting to um, understanding people uh, from their from their vantage point. And I think if you're going to create a concept, right. you know, it's best for us to learn from from who created the concept. So that's so that's my whole opening statement about why that's really important. We just have to have humility in order to learn and to acknowledge that we have something to learn from everyone. Um, With that being said, critical race theory is only a few decades old, the the kind of the the crystallized form of it, right? And it it comes to us through the discipline of law. Uh, Critical race theory um, is is really um, a, a framework in which to understand um, mm-hmm. really the, the the permanence and the um, and the outworkings of, of race and racism um, in America specifically is kind of how it's it's centered. Although you can extrapolate these concepts for different uh, national and cultural contexts, right. um, and so. Coming out of the civil rights movement, when we think about something like Brown versus Board Board of Education, right? So people were thinking, you know, if we can just get schools integrated, this is going to result in a kind of a more equitable learning experience for African-American people. Um, but that that did not happen. <laughs> that did not happen. And so uh, who the people who would become critical race theorists, one of the first questions and around that particular issue they begin to raise is the question of, no, why right. didn't integration change this? Or why didn't these right. political interventions, these these laws, these policy changes, uh, why didn't the... Um, you know, why didn't the legal response to discrimination, why does that not change the disparity or the racism that we see manifested even today in systems and practices? And so the critical race theory response, uh, ideology, practice, questions, tenets are are attempting to answer that question. Right. Um, and so, and, and for example, one of those components, which I think people probably get really uncomfortable with, particularly based on their worldview and cultural orientation, is kind of this idea of the permanence of racism. That racism is baked in, it's seeded into the foundation of the United States, and it's it's seeded in more specifically, because remember this comes from, from the legal world, it's seeded into our laws, our practices, our judicial system. Now, as I'm saying this, people might be listening who know nothing at all at all about critical race theory or sociology, and they could be nodding their head and being like, duh, of course. <laughs> like, you know, they they I mean they might fully embrace they're like, of course it's racist. I mean, like I mean, this was founded on like the genocide of indigenous people and on the backs of black people. I mean, we had, (laughs) you know, the exclusion of of Asian people for decades from the, I mean, like this is a real racist project over here, right? So 
that for, for some people, that's just a given. But but the truth right. is the dominant narrative, which is another tenet of critical race theory, the, the dominant narrative is that America is a meritocracy. Right. And right. that there is this and that the law is is colorblind and that racism is the exception and not the rule. And critical race theorists would say, no, this thing is has been set up to maintain the racist system and racial hierarchy. Um, so, so those are just some of the elements um, that we find when we look at critical race theory. Labels. Where did they come from? Who are the labelers? Let's keep going. You know, a lot of us have academic backgrounds. Um, some of us have um, seminary backgrounds. And so um, I had even never heard of the word <laughs> until um, I was labeled labeled this, you know, and I'm like, okay, I don't even know what it is. So I know I'm not coming from that direction when I don't even know what it is. You bring up an important point, like, okay, I want to emphasize that these are labels that other people are putting on us. Right. And and, and so I, I, I need people to understand if they haven't already, mm-hmm. that it wasn't a bunch of us black Christians mm-hmm. who are advocating for racial justice running around with banners that said critical race theory or I am a critical race theorist. Right. No, 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 no. What happened was they put that on us. They meaning, here's how I would describe them, either as fundamentalist Christians of the old school, like 1920s kind of fundamentalist. Here are the all the boxes that you have to check to be, quote unquote, our kind of Christian. And anyone who deviates on any one of these points is not even Christian, right. that kind of fundamentalist. Or uh, Christian nationalist, which we'll get into, I'm sure, later. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say they, that's who I'm talking about. And by the way, this can span races and ethnicities because I've seen them trot out people of color and black people to parrot these talking points to try to give them some legitimacy. Um, so, so it spans racial and ethnic backgrounds. But when I say they, I'm meaning fundamentalists or Christian nationalist um, yeah. folks. They've put those labels on us. Right. These are not labels that we as um, uh, advocates for racial justice have used. And that is telling. That yeah, is telling, it's telling. right? Um, because... It means a couple of things. Number one, it means that they are finding new ways to put us in boxes and therefore um, demonize us or reject us. And number two, I think it's a form of intellectual arrogance on their part because Mm -hmm. I can imagine a retort of, you know, both you and I are like, we never use this label. And and I can imagine a retort being, well, you know, you're being used by the label. You didn't even know it, but, you know, you pick these ideas up here, there, and everywhere. You didn't know what it was called, but here's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a form of intellectual arrogance because you're basically saying I'm too stupid to know or too ignorant to know um, when I am deploying a theory. Right. Uh, and, and so you have to come in and tell me, oh, here's what you're actually doing. Nah, nah, especially not on <laughs> racial justice. So just a couple of caveats there. Right. I assume that you know, or at least sense, that we don't operate in spaces that are content with being comfortable through sugarcoating. So listen as Latasha and Dr. Edmondson take us a step further. Um, you know, but we see it um, being played out. And so I would just wonder, you know, what, um, you know, why do you think it's being rejected by the ch- by the church as a whole? And, and we know that there's more churches that understand that. I mean, I, we work with so many churches that are not being fooled by this. They see it. They see it playing out in their congregation. They they're touch. They you know, they see it playing out in um 
in their community. So we see a lot of churches that are on the front lines, that are working, that are educated in themselves, that are lamenting over this, and that are really digging deep into this. So, um, but you know, you have so a lot of times the people that are um, what um, one of my friends said is like kind of loud, late, and wrong, um, you know, um, that are the, the loudest voices in this. And sometimes the loudest voices may seem like the majority, but they're not. Um, so I, wh- why do you think this is being rejected by the church? Yeah, well, and, and I would say this and I, and, I, and I get your question. I would I would um, I would nuance the question a little bit more. Why is it being rejected okay. by the white dominant church? Because yes, I think, yes. because because I think that that's a good um, one. Correction, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm so collective. I'm so collective and co- inclusive. You know, I I just talk like that. But yeah, let's make it clear. Let's make it plain, and let's yeah, yeah. make it clear. And and I'm um, saying that and, I'm saying and that sociologically, that. not. The, I'm saying that sociologically and not because for the folks who get all like, what do you mean, black church, white church? Okay, I'm speaking sociologically, yeah, right. which I I wish I'm 100 certain that people who criticize that can understand and comprehend the the nuance of the sociological distinction of an organization and the theological church um, that that Christ is Mm -hmm. coming back for, right? That Christ is the head of, right? So speaking sociologically, Mm -hmm. there is a white dominant church, right? And so, and that Mm -hmm. particular church tradition, the culture of that church, some of its presuppositions, some of the things that it has advocated for and been shaped around some of its assumptions actually are in contradiction to some of the tenets of CRT. So it, it, it makes sense to me that um, whereas there are other church traditions that would, would say like, well, of course, this racism is baked in in this in this country. There are other white dominant church traditions who... Um, would who reject that that tenet altogether? Um, they believe that mm-hmm. racism has stopped, that or that racism is is personal. That it's um, you know, it's kind yeah. of a, a you know a poor way of thinking about someone. It's not charitable, um, and that it's equally held by people, irregardless of where they find themselves within that racial caste system or categorization system mm-hmm. of racialization, and so. That idea of itself, we know, is held more strongly by white evangelical people identify that way than any other group, any other collection, <laughs> any other collective of people. Right. And so that that particular cultural orientation is very much so set up against that particular that particular tenant. Also, I think that people who, um, you know, people who uh, believe that sin gets better with time. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I would argue that that is a part of the features of, 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 of white cultural identity is a kind of a, a way of thinking about time um, that so they, they'll look at someone might acknowledge like, yeah, that was that was bad during slavery or Jim Crow. Like that was racist. But mm-hmm. but what we see before us now, that's just kind of, you know, that that's an outlier. Right. And that things right. are actually mm-hmm. inevitably going to get better. Well, CRT, you know, is like no, it's not. Like it's it's it's. This is what it is. Like the the nature of the the institution of the country of the legal system, or and then by extension the other areas, the other disciplines that are impacted by CRT or have a CRT lens. Mm-hmm. That by extension those things um, are have rooted within them this racial stratification, this racist system. And so people who have a different worldview, right, about inevitable progress. Um, a belief that racism gets better with time, um, people who believe that um, 
that racism is actually natural, meaning that they uh, believe actually there's a moral hierarchy of people. And you would be surprised what the research shows us about <laughs> the amount of people who actually look look at their neighbors mm-hmm. in that way, right? Who, who explain, you know, you, you hear this trope when someone talks about, well, the real issue is not racial stratification. It's it's fatherlessness. That's what's wrong with black people, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. You right. know, as, as if black people wake up in the morning, they're like, yeah, we don't want, we want mass incarceration. We don't want fathers in the home. I mean, like, they, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so, you know, and, and as if right. all of that came to be apart from systemic racism, right? Um, exactly. Um, exactly. And so there, so, so the there is a, that. at the top of the list of people who hold to the belief of, of kind of a, a racial hierarchy of morality, of culture, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, that explain uh, systemic racism by saying that there's something up with those people, white evangelical mm-hmm. conservatives sit at the top of the list of people who hold that particular way of understanding injustice. And so CRT yeah. is like the, in some ways, you know, will feel like the opposite of that. And so um, it, it certainly makes sense to me that the white dominant church would reject those elements. And with that being said, um, there are people who, uh, who reject elements of CRT because, um, you know, they would say that it sees everybody in categories. And I would, and I would make the case, and I'm not even like a diehard CRT, you know, apologist. I usually work from, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I can make my case. I feel like from old and new Testament actually around, <laughs> around right. these issues. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just feel like it's just, it's just kind of obviously in the text, you know? Um, but it is, th- it, it, it's there, it's there, but, um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who push back on, um, the, the CRT categorizations and intersectionality. That's another one that's going to be a hot topic people will push back on. Um, mm-hmm. but, but CRT does not create the social construction of race. It is simply just saying that it's there, exactly. right? Which it is there. Mm-hmm. And we can look at just the last few, few hundred years of history and look at the way that race was indeed constructed and that race was not just designed to categorize, it was also designed to stratify, right? In order to allow right. for, um, yeah, the, the colonization, the oppression, the selling, the breeding, the trafficking of people, right? And so CRT doesn't, didn't give us that concept. They're just pointing it out and they're making the case um, and remind you, they're not, they're not like, you know, they're not peddling hope. They're not selling hope. They're not preachers of the gospel. They are right. <laughs> largely lawyers. And they're making the case that this is baked into the foundation of the judicial system of this country. And they've got a lot of receipts to be able to make that case. Make that case. Make that case. Make that case. Wow, this is so good. I think we all need to take a little bit of a breather and we will be back shortly. Navigating the stress of sudden changes in income, health complications, and or the loss of someone close can be overwhelming, not to mention the stress of this tense time of political and social disharmony. Honestly, at this time, we could all use a little help. Well, guess what? There's BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P. BetterHelp.com makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient for anyone who may currently struggle with life's challenges. If that's you, you can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp.com offers access to licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board-licensed professional counselors. We want you to start living a happier life today. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash Be The Bridge. 
Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash be the bridge. Don't fall into the trap of trying to help yourself. Get better help at betterhelp.com. Thanks for staying with us. Let's pick up Latasha's conversation with today's guest. When dealing with CRT, we are in essence dealing with the topic of racial justice at its core. I love what Jamar says here. Take a listen. So um, one of the things that I want to say, my professors taught me, you know, there's a popular phrase that says uh, history repeats itself. Yes. But they'll say, you know, uh, more accurately, history doesn't repeat itself, but history rhymes. Mm. And what they're getting at there is that every context is different, right? 1968 is not 2018, is not 1868. But, of course, we do see patterns, okay? So we have seen patterns like this in the past. So if if your listeners Google this phrase, communism is race mixing, communism is Mm. race mixing, there'll be a picture that comes up of a a protest of white, full of white people, and they're holding this sign up as a a sort of picket sign. And of course, this is more than half a century ago. So we we understand the historicity of it. The other part of it, though, why, why, how did it get attached? How did racial justice efforts get attached to Mm. communism? I think is an important historical uh, uh, aspect that we need to explore. And uh, one of the ways that that happened was we have to understand that, that the black civil rights movement is part of a long struggle for equity among lots of different people, including the working class. And so I don't want to set up a dichotomy between race and class at all. Um, But understand that a lot of these sort of nonviolent direct action techniques uh, came from the labor movement. And even the March on Washington, the idea itself Mm -hmm. was proposed either in the 1940s or 1950s by um, uh, Randolph. um, Blanking on the name right now, but A. Philip Randolph and his uh, compatriots. So understand some of these tactics we are borrowing from the labor movement that came in the first third or or so of the 20th century the reason i bring that up is because what the labor movement was trying to push for was not only workers rights but but racial rights as well and so these are you know they're pushing for unions they're pushing to be able to organize they're pushing for fair wages all of those things what happens is in world war ii and post world war ii the labor movement gets mixed up with ideas of communism because the labor movement was talking about you know forms of equitable distribution of material wealth and then people Mm -hmm. lump that in with communism where everyone's supposed to get exactly the same thing right um uh, Mm -hmm. materially then what happened was organizers soon found out that in order to make progress on racial justice they had to drop this uh uh focus on on labor Uh, and labor rights, but the cat was already out of the bag, so to speak, and people still equated the racial justice movement with communism because they viewed the racial justice movement as trying to make all people equal, 
which in a, in, in a civic sense they were trying to, but they were trying to say, well, this is communism because they want to uh, erase any differences and make what they were really afraid of. A lot of folks was quote, quote unquote racial amalgamation where black mm. men would sleep with white women. And that was one of their main reasons to maintain segregation. So I just wanted to give a little bit of background and context for how yeah, even this good. communism thing, how, how those two ideas even got linked. As we look at racial justice through the lens of CRT, we cannot escape biases. Dr. Edmondson really breaks this down. Separate but equal. We look back at the civil rights movement. All of those things now, people think that they would have marched. <laughs> You know, oh, and I'm of like, course, uh, of course. Not, no, you wouldn't have. Yes. No, you you would have been on the they sidelines. You would have been a part of the problem. <laughs> you know, as, and, as and, is the practice because you're a part the of the problem now. <laughs> exactly. But you know, Tasha, I was I was gonna say I was I was gonna add about you know with with critical race theory that uh-huh. you know I, in terms in terms of like the the presuppositions of the things that we. Um, the biases that we have about people in their positions. And so another one of those strong biases, which I think causes the hypercriticism, not to mention the fact that people just don't want to deal with racism and repent, um, is that critical race theorists are scholar activists. And they don't don't make any apologies about that. So you may not agree with what their Uh their activism is about, but... And that in itself is a is a is a particular cultural uh, orientation that pushes back against the kind of the Western scholastic notion of, of academic neutrality, like this sense of like, I'm just I don't have any biases. I'm just teaching you content to teach you content, which is a, ridiculous. Everyone right. has a bias and everyone mm-hmm. is teaching out of their worldview. Right. Yeah. Uh, thoughtful, insightful teachers exactly. are honest enough to t- show you their cards. Right. They reveal what it is. But critical race theorists, they're not making any apologies about the fact that they are they are teaching for they're advocating towards what they believe is justice. And. And, mm. and and they're and they're pretty they're pretty outspoken about that, and so they're scholar activists. That in of itself uh, gives them a different kind of a, a tone or a different um, different emphasis, a different kind of a priority on the actualization of these concepts and practices coming to life and bearing you know measurable change is what they're is what they're leaning for, and not the idea of just we're going to communicate knowledge to communicate knowledge. So they push back on kind of these notions of the neutrality of knowledge, the neutrality of information, and the um, accepted the accepted beliefs about you know what is true. And this is another really philosophical controversial element of CRT. People would say. Well, there are CRT uh, theorists who would push back on notions of truth. Now, that doesn't make me uncomfortable because <laughs> um, because of my belief my belief about depravity. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we have to push back on our notions right. of what we think is true, what has been given, what pops up in my own head and mind. That all needs to be laid before mm-hmm. the Lord. It all needs to be examined by the work of the Holy Spirit. And and I think the, and while we have different tools that we're going to submit to as a, as a believer, I'm submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit. This this fundamental idea that we've been handed so-called truths and air quotes that need to be interrogated and examined. Amen. I a hundred percent agree yeah. with that. Um, and there was a right. time when the truth that we were handed to is that black people were created to be enslaved, right? There were, there were segments of the church teaching that yeah. right um pe- yes. people that are still quoted from yeah. pulpits today and so th- that yes. idea that yes. we need to challenge that really really matters and i think um as activist scholars 
they uh, they fall in line with a very important tradition of, uh, for that to be frank, uh, African-American uh, academicians who have embraced that identity for a very long time. Teaching towards justice predates critical race theory and has always made the white establishment, exactly. white dominant establishment incredibly nervous because it threatens power, right? It threatens position, it threatens resource. We can't deal with racial justice and or injustice without dealing with racism. Dr. Edmondson talks about dealing with racism in the context of academia as it relates to CRT. Let's continue. Well, so so there there are aspects of it that uh, of critical race theory that certainly resonate with me with with me and and kind of my particular worldview. Uh-huh. Part of that, so so I hold to um, the doctrine of total depravity, which doesn't mean that we are uh-huh. <laughs> we are the worst thing possible ever, right? right? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh-huh. We are, you know, we are we are made in the image of God, but right, it does right. speak to the right. the depths of sin. Just, just how, just how low and how deep sin go, not on a just a personal level, but in a institutional, structural, and cosmic level, right? So the whole world is indeed impacted by the fall, and so, and so when critical race theorists talk about the bakedness of of racism into our systems and into our philosophies into our law, for me that's just that's just not a huge stretch. Um, uh, because because I would make I would go a step further, right? I go I mean I go further than CRT, right, right. and I'm talking about racism and white supremacy as a principality that's seeking to kill and destroy us. That it is bondage on mm. on, on our neighbors, and that it's bondage of delusion and self idolatry mm. on white people. My language is probably significantly mm-hmm. stronger um, than critical race theorists right, language on right. this topic. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so what, but, but I, but that resonates with me, the, the, how permeated it is, how deep into the system and that we have to go to the root. We have corrupted roots. And that as someone who, again, uh, believes and understands the depths of sin, um, that makes sense to me that it, it is at the very root, at the very core, and we have to examine those roots and presuppositions. The other, the other piece that is that resonates with me in, in terms of, um, so I mean, the significant pieces, right? So. Um, the the critique of the concept of liberalism this is the historic concept of liberalism now when we're talking now about liberal progressive right but just the historical concept of of liberalism in western society this idea of meritocracy mm-hmm. and color blindness and and neutrality and um yeah so i so so in many ways because of my faith not because of my sociology because of my faith I reject those pieces. I know, like, I know that that is not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that that is right. not the case, right? Um, I know that we do not right. live in a colorblind right. world, uh, colorblind reality. As, as as you and I are descendants of the mm-hmm. transatlantic slave trade, like we know this. Right. <laughs> we know we are not in a colorblind reality. Exactly. Um, exactly. And and so. And so, so I think they're just saying they're echoing something that they can see within the law and practice and data. And I would say that it seems it's anecdotally pretty obvious. The other other piece is this idea of counter storytelling. And as someone who engages in intergroup dialogue work, this is actually really important that we examine the dominant narratives that we have been given. This this should not be like outright shocking or like 
or just to just just to say that it's you know radical because it makes us afraid but it's just true we've been given dominant narratives about how the world works right what is beauty um you know what what is professionalism you know just you can take of any topic and think about mm-hmm. the narratives that we have been given by it and um what yeah. critical race theorists emphasize whether it's in uh within the tradition of the discipline of law or kind of extrapolated out to education and the social sciences is that it is imperative that we hear the voices of marginalized storytellers about their experience. Now that, yes, amen, I am 110% (laughs) signed on for Mm -hmm. that, uh, to be able to humbly listen to those stories and to recognize, as Kimberly Crenshaw talks about, um, the role of intersectionality, which, by the way, is one of the most controversial aspects of critical race theory for Christians. But this idea that we have compounding identities that that, uh, further permeate our marginalization in a society, this should not be shocking. I can look at scripture, actually, and think about the many ways that scripture is attentive and mindful, not necessarily to give us the name of a person, but to give us their identity markers to tell us about the right. Canaanite mm-hmm. woman. Now, why do we, now why do we have, uh-huh. <laughs> why is that put together, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's showing right. us something about the grace that God is extending, extending to those who are marginalized in that mm-hmm. society, doubly marginally, uh, marginalized, mm-hmm. triply marginalized in society. And so that matters, mm-hmm. that matters. And so this does not negate the gospel. It is speaking to a social phenomenon uh, about the ways in which people have layered identities in which they are afforded uh, social privileges or denied uh, yeah. social privileges um, or esteem um, in relation to that. So th- those, and, I, and I'm giving yeah. you a, a you know a hundred thousand yeah. view analysis of this. But that in of itself, you know, if you've done any type of justice work, anti-racism work, none of those cons, none of that should should be outrageous or bizarre. Now, we might differ on the conclusion or what to do with that or what is next based on discipline, based on our, um, uh, you know, our theological commitments, politic, worldview, whatever. But but some of these pieces mm-hmm. to me are just simply found, kind of some foundational uh, building blocks in terms of thinking about um, injustice in society. So I would say that, um, you know, some of the critiques so you know, I you know I'm I'm a gospel person, um, <laughs> and so I think when uh-huh, uh-huh. when when people talk about the permanence of racism, um, it, it can feel uh-huh. hopeless to people. It can cause some people to feel stagnant, right. and it can also be translated uh-huh. to be akin to those who are like, well, it's not a you know it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. It's always going to be. Let's keep it moving, right? Yeah. So it can. I think this is not the intention of it. Critical race theorists are not like, it's just sad, it's bad, let's just sit down and do nothing. But I can see it being interpreted that way. Um, And then people can oversimplify it and then say, well, you know, um, we can't make progress. And then you'll hear some of the critiques I've heard people feeling like, well, you know, we're always going to be repenting over this. And, and of course, I would say, well, amen, we're always going to be repenting until we go to glory. This is kind of <laughs> this, is, this is the way that we live right. day to day. Right. Exactly. This is this is who we are mm-hmm. as Christians. The blood has brought us the, the privilege and the duty and the burden to repent. <laughs> that is who we are now um, in every area of life. Um, 
But that is, but I would say that is one of those critiques that people kind of grab a hold of and they can run with, I think, partially through misinterpretation and not listening charitably uh, to some of the intentions around those topics. There are also some elements, obviously, right, the, the, the roots of critical race theory are going to be coming out of um, kind of Karl Marx and, and Engels' um, philosophies where we get um, both Marxism and then by extrapolation, um, socialism and communism. And that makes people incredibly uncomfortable. Um, some of that, I think, is rooted in kind of an understanding of those ideas. And I think a lot of it actually is rooted in it just being a pretty um, easily accessible go-to trope to not have to listen, to not have to engage, yeah. as well as being 110% sold out to capitalism without any discernment, without any wisdom, <laughs> you know? So um, looking at, yeah, looking at yeah. capitalism as a morally neutral construction when it kind of thrives on the idea of competition as if that's morally neutral, um, I would say mm -hmm. causes people to push back too quickly. My encouragement is that we actually take the time to read our academic neighbors, our scholarly neighbors, to respect their discipline. And then um, obviously continue to pray and ask the Lord to give us the critical discernment that we need in order to chew the meat and spit out the bones. And that's the case with everything, every system, every philosophy right. Um, right, that, we, right. that we are able to explore. The question that so many ask, so what does one do when dealing with church leaders, especially those that come from academic backgrounds steeped in flawed traditions? So, so the temptation is going to be to engage in a conversation on critical race theory. If at all possible, don't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So yeah. I'm not saying don't learn, you know, different responses or whatever, yeah. but, but here's, here's my issue. Um, and Tyler mm -hmm. Burns, my co-host on Pass the Mic, he's been really great at, at, at drawing attention to this, is we constantly, we meaning racial justice advocates, constantly let our opponents set the terms of debate. Yes. So they are the ones proposing the question or the issue mm -hmm. or the topic to be debated. And mm -hmm. nine times out of ten, it circles around the real issue, which is mm -hmm. oppression based on race or ethnicity, yeah. right? And, mm -hmm. and, and critical race theory is just the latest iteration of opponents of racial justice setting the terms of debate. And then the more we sort of engage in it and make it an issue, the more they sort of win at distracting us, right? Um, mm -hmm. that, that, that there's always this constant... Um, uh, attempt to distract our attention away from the real issue at hand, which is black so and brown good. bodies being hurt, being oppressed, being mm -hmm. even killed. Right. So, so, so that's one thing, but, but so don't always just remember, you know, when they bring this up, they are setting the terms of debate and you can say, I'll answer that question, but understand the real issue here is how are we preventing harm to, um, people because of based on their race or ethnicity right and then mm -hmm. the next part is this the reason why i think it's really dangerous to let other people set the terms of the debate is because not only do they ignore the real issues of racial justice at hand they also ignore the real threat to christianity in the united states yes which i would label and i think history gives us copious evidence of this i think the mm -hmm. real question the i think the real threat to Christianity in the United States is not critical race theory or anything like it. It's Christian nationalism. Yes. Christian nationalism. We don't want to say a word about that. My, my, know? my. 
Listen, that's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just unpack a little bit. Of Break it down. Just what just unpack I mean. a little. Give us a little bit of. Just give us a little taste, brother. So Christian nationalism. I am drawing mm-hmm. here from mainly from Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead's recent book called Taking America Back for God. Go ahead and put that on your reading list. Taking America Back for God. It is a sociological examination of Christian nationalism. And here's how they define it. Christian nationalism is an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity, asterisk, which I'll explain later, a fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. Okay? Fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. Here's how they define Christianity according to the Christian nationalist version. Christian in this sense represents more of an ethnocultural and political identity, ethnocultural and political identity that denotes a specific constellation of religious affiliation, cultural values, mm-hmm. race, and nationality. I'll break it down one more level. By religious affiliation, they mean evangelical Protestant. By Mm -hmm. cultural values, they mean conservative. By race, they mean white. And by nationality, they mean American-born citizen. Mm. So what is it to be truly American? It's to be an evangelical Protestant, theologically and politically conservative, who is raced as white and is an American-born citizen as opposed to an immigrant. That's what they're getting Mm. at with Christian nationalism. Now... Let me give you a historical example of this fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. Uh, I frequently mention this, but the Ku Klux Klan had three major iterations. One was right after the Civil War in the 1860s, for obvious reasons, trying to reiterate white supremacy post-emancipation. The third wave was in the 1950s and 60s, again, for obvious reasons. It was a pushback against the civil rights movement and black uh, advancement for, for civil rights. And then the second iteration was in many ways the most widespread and violent of the iterations. And this occurred in 1915 on Thanksgiving Day where a former white Methodist circuit writer, so a former preacher, led a group of white men to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia. And you're in Georgia. Mm. You know what's on the front of Stone Mountain. Yeah. All these Mm -hmm. Confederate heroes, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And they go to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, and what do they do? They do a couple of things. One, they they erect a cross and they burn it, which Mm -hmm. becomes a symbol of white racial terrorism and civil rights movement, as we know. Uh, They also build an altar. And on that altar, they place two items. They place the Bible and an American flag. Yeah. And I think this event is so illustrative because it it shows us Christian nationalism in action. What's the subtext here? Number one, you've got this religious ceremony with the cross, with the altar, with the Bible, right? And they're talking about evangelical Protestants because they're they're they got issues with Catholics, right? They got issues with Jews and people of any other religion. Uh, so they're talking about evangelical Protestants. You've got this uh, uh, um, this sort of nationalistic thing going on with an American flag, which is so ironic, right? An American flag on top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, which celebrates the Confederacy, which broke from the Union. It's it's interesting 
the kind of mental yeah. gymnastics you have to do to make those things fit together. But uh, this this form of nationalism, which is talking about American born citizen, right, against immigrants. Mm -hmm. And in 1924, they're going to pass the, you know, exclusion acts, which exclude people, immigrants from certain countries deemed, quote unquote, undesirable. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And then lastly, there's this fusion with race. Now, you ain't got no black people up there. This ceremony mm -hmm. is not for Native Americans whose land they're desecrating uh, with this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, vast relief of Confederate uh, people. So he, this is like the perfect illustration of Christian nationalism at work, this American civic belonging participation with the flag, the Bible, the cross and white supremacy all wrapped up in one. You want to talk about threats to U.S. Christianity? That's the threat to U.S. Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't this all just a distraction? Hmm. Um, to your point about the distraction that this causes, yeah. once you start to go down this rabbit hole, it, it, it's unending, right? Because they're always going to yeah. come back with these arguments and these whatabouts and all of this. And this is really why, uh, one of the big reasons why the witness changed our name. Um, mm. we, we started as the Reformed African American Network, and this is on me. But at that point, I was trying to sort of make space, carve out space within these predominantly white circles for black people and black voices. Well, mm -hmm. through a series of events and over time, it became readily apparent that the most vocal white people in these circles did not want us there unless we conformed and, and assimilated to their right. version of Christianity. Exactly. And so uh, yeah. one of the reasons we changed our name, they're both push and pull factors, but this is a push factor, is we were spending so much time and energy explaining our articles, explaining our tweets, explaining our stances. And, and what we came to realize is that all this time and energy that we are expending defending ourselves or doing what I call racial apologetics mm -hmm. was mm. time and energy that we were not spending actually on the marginalized and oppressed and uplifting mm. them in our case, black Christians. Um, yeah. And so we are like, okay, no more. You can have the label. You can have this space. We need to build our own table and we need to make sure that we are giving our best time and our best energy to the people, like you said, who are ready to come along um, in terms of allies and advocates and um, particularly a focus for us at The Witness, uh, black Christians who, who um, we need to deal with each other on our own terms, not constantly be defending ourselves from external attacks. It is important not only to dig into CRT, but to hear and search for thought leaders in this space. I'm going to read that document, but I would, I would encourage anyone who's listening to, to, to check out um, Critical Race Theory, they can find this, you know, anywhere. It's a, it's a book called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings That Form the Movement. And what it is, is a kind of a compilation, mm. and they're, they're going to be very legal legal sounding, which is outside of my discipline, but it is, it is the right. historical foundational <laughs> documents of critical race theory. And I would encourage people to check out the authors, the theorists, the activist scholars in their own words, yeah. even before they read something written by... Uh, anybody else on this topic, hear, hear these folks right. out. In, in, in higher ed, we really care about primary sources. So you need to listen, <laughs> you need to read those primary right, source right, documents right. that are available to us to, in order to be loving to our academic neighbors. We need to be loving to our scholar right. neighbors. Right. And so I don't know, like, could you just tell me this? Like, and I, I, I've heard this where most of the, um, 
the um, original scholars of this. Um, were they um, people of color, African-American? So Derek, Derek, you know? Derek Bell's African-American man. He's really considered the person yeah, kind no, of coined this. Yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw is st- still right. highly influential. Um, and, and, and by the way, a, yes. a lot of these uh-huh. academicians are, you know, they are well known in their own right being, you know, the first woman of color in a variety right. of spaces. You've got, um, you know, really a, a whole, whole host of people. Um, who really represent being kind of the first? Like um, I'm, I'm thinking uh, about Mary um, uh, Mat Matsuda, uh, who is um, first Asian American scholar in her particular academic institution. Um, these these folks, whether you agree with them or not, um, are you know top in their field. They've done the work, even if you don't agree with the ideas. Yeah. <laughs> they are academic neighbors. They deserve our respect and appreciation. Yeah, I w- and people of color, overwhelmingly people, but not not yeah. but not exclusively people of color, and even amongst critical yeah, race theorists, yeah. you're going to have tension between the different um, that under that large umbrella, there are people who have tension amongst the um, under that umbrella about the different ways that they are yeah. working through these concepts. I think we should cap off these discussions with what Jamar said here. Really take this in. This is so good. Yeah, so um, I think the burden is a little bit different based on your whether you're white, black, or another person of color. Um, I think for white people, there is a little bit more of a responsibility to engage this particular debate over critical mm-hmm. race theory. Um, I will never forget when this first started popping off. It really has been probably a couple of years now on social media. And mm-hmm. uh, somebody accused me of this. And I was like, what? What is this? And I was fixing my fingers to type a response. And before I ever got to it, uh, Bradley Mason online. Yes. He yes. chimed in with with an even better response than I was prepared to give. Right. Uh-huh. And even ever since then, he's done incredible work. Uh, yes. Really digging into the nitty gritty of this. And, and, and the reason why that's so important is because... When allies, allies and advocates are really allies and yes. advocates when they do the labor yes. that we that, that we would have had to do. But they jump yes. in and, and, and take that up, especially with their people. Right. White folks talking so to other good. white folks. So I yeah. do think there is a bit of a responsibility. I don't want people to go so far that this is all you're doing. Um, that you yeah. can't, you know, ally in other ways. But, you know, before a black person or a person of color has to respond, it would be nice if our, yeah. if our allies and advocates uh, hopped on it first. Um, secondly, for black folks and other people of color, you know, it's one of those things where here's the here's the turning point for me. I was not given this much oxygen at all until we get this announcement from the White House that they want to ban critical race theory and white privilege. Mm. I was like, what? Wow. Wow. (laughs) Talk about the federal government, like, you know, like put this stuff like, you know, out there, you know, um, even uh, as it relates over states, like which most people would have a fit about. Come on. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) let me just say this about that. 
No, we yes. saw this popping off in the church long before it hit the federal government yeah. or politics. The church is the barometer. Yes, exactly. It is. Mm-hmm. And so we saw this even in the lead up to the Civil War, where the Methodist, Presbyterians and Baptists split before the actual war popped off. And it was a, a harbinger mm-hmm. of the division that was to come. And in a similar sense, I think because we've seen critical race theory as this boogeyman pick up steam in the last several years in the church, and now it hits politics. Politics, which, by the way, there's a linkage there. Somehow it's mm. getting from these fundamentalist Christian nationalists to people in the White House and at the highest levels of federal government, which tells you this stuff is in the church, right? And by yes. the way, you want to talk about being too political, talk about that. How does it make this leap mm. from the church to the White House and, and being political in that sense? So that's a big deal. And, and it was a big deal for me because it marked a turning point when now it's part of the mainstream discourse and not these sort of far right corners of Christianity. So then I started talking about it a little bit more. And so I do think it's incumbent upon us to be at least cognizant of the contours of the debate. I don't know that we need to go and do a deep dive into the study, but you just want to be conversant on it. But again, I think for all of us, uh, no matter what your race or ethnicity, pulling the conversation back to what the real threat is, things like QAnon and conspiracy theories, things like white or Christian nationalism, which spans not just um, evangelicalism, but but all strands of Protestantism, mainline denominations, Catholics, um, and spans across mm-hmm. races and ethnicities. So those are the things that, that we need to, we need to be conversant on this stuff that they're, they're labeling us with, but we also need to pull the conversation back toward the real issue, which is in this case, in 2020, um, uh, working against anti-black police brutality. And we need to say, if you want to talk about threats to Christianity, let's talk about uh, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. nationalism. The goal was not to be exhaustive, but rather to give a brief overview where we could explain how and why we utilize some parts of CRT, which weren't directly born out of the church, and to help others feel more prepared if criticism is leveraged towards them or be the bridge as a whole for doing so. In the end, the important question we must answer is not whether we're engaged in the work of reconciliation in the way others think we should, but rather, are we being faithful to the God we serve? At the end of the day, racial reconciliation is an area where we have been led and called. But with that said, we must take it upon ourselves to become versed in varied areas of thinking so that we can be more effective in our efforts as bridge builders. Today's episode was so informative. Special thanks to Latasha for letting me step in as today's host. Latasha will be back for the next episode. Oh yeah, since we're all friends now, when you have a chance, check out the Be The Bridge Collective podcast, Melanated Faith, hosted by yours truly and Katherine Freeman. On this podcast, you're going to hear the truth spoken, the tea spilled, and pop culture explored. Melanated Faith is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as other platforms. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, let's build bridges and not walls. If you are a member of the Donors Table, you get access to today's unedited episode. Go check it out. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. 
You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. Brittany Prescott was our transcriber. Please join us next time. This has been a Be the Bridge production. Be the Bridge, 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 be the Bridge.